Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. We're going back into this series, and this is a series that is really here and meant to shape the way that you see the world. That's the point. The point of this series is to help you see the world through the lens of God's word, through the lens of the scriptures, the lens of the Bible. And you may say, well, that's, Pastor, that's kind of presumptuous to tell us how to see the world. It's not presumptuous at all. As a matter of fact, the world has told you how to see it your entire life, and now the truth is coming to tell you how to actually see it. Through the lens of God's word, this is how we are supposed to see the world, because this is the clear perspective of the world. This is the right way of seeing the world. This is what we call a worldview series. And it's intended to help you view the world again through the lens of the Bible. Now, last week, we began with Dr. Scott here teaching and talking about the good news, the creation. Now, why is that important? What does it have to do with the worldview? Because the perspectives of the world, the philosophies of the world, the vain philosophies of the world will tell you that the world came about through this method or through this method. And isn't it ironic how we can have so much faith in things that seem impossible that have nothing to do with God? How did the world come about? Well, there was a bang. How did the bang start? I don't know. But it was a bang. Well, how did the world, how did we come to be? Well, we just evolved. So we came from monkeys? Yes. Then why do you get mad at your children when they act like one? Right? So we can put our faith in all of these things. I've heard, I've heard, listen, brilliant thinkers, brilliant minds that happen to be atheists and they just lose their minds. They have more faith that aliens began this, pl- I'm not exaggerating, more faith that aliens began this planet than God spoke it into existence. Isn't it ironic? And so, when we're talking about the worldview, we're talking about the word view, the way that God shaped and created the world. We have to see it through the proper lens, which is the way that he said that it was done. So last week, Dr. Scott began again talking about the good news, right? When God created the earth, he said it was good. He created this, it's good. He created that, it's good. And then God got to man and he said it was very good. It's very good. So that was the good news, the good thing. But today, we're going to turn the page and we're going to talk about the bad news. We're going to talk about one of the most pivotal moments. I'm going to retract that statement. Not one of, in the top two or three pivotal moments in all of human history. That's the moment we're going to unpack today. That's how severe this moment was. This is how massively impactful this moment was in all of human existence. So we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the bad news. Now, again, God had said, that's good, that's good. And it was only one thing up to this point that God said was not good. And that was that man should be alone. Everything else he said It's good, it's good, it's good. When he saw man alone, he said, that's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. Wives, when you leave your husbands at home, whoever said that counseling sessions are open, available this week, Monday through Thursday, you get the picture. I don't have to stress that anymore. It's not good for man to be alone. But we see in this that the earth, the Bible says, it was formless. There was a void. But then God spoke and he brought things into order. That's what happens when God speaks. He brings things that are formless or things that are chaotic or things that are messy. When the word of God comes, he forms it. He brings things into order simply by speaking. He 
said, let there be light. He said, let there be an expanse of water. He said, let's part, let's divide the waters from the dry land. He said, let the earth sprout vegetation. He said, let there be a difference between day and night. And he said, let there be creatures in the water and birds in the air. He said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. And then he says this in Genesis chapter 2. Verse 26, then God said, let us make human beings or man in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Now, previous to this, we see that God formed man with his hands. That was the only thing that God actually used his hands to form. Everything else he spoke into existence, but he formed man. But in this chapter, in this verse, we see him speaking and him saying, let us make man in our image. And let me ask you a question. Who is the us? Because there's a lot of religions who don't believe that there is an us in this dynamic, in this context. The us, some of you said it, it's the Trinity. That was not something that was birth all of a sudden when Jesus came. Jesus always was. He was in the beginning. The Bible says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So the us is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's who the us was. We see the Trinity. People say, I don't know if the Trinity is in the Bible. It's in the very early chapters of the Bible. Let us make man in our own image. Another thing that illustrates the Trinity is in Genesis chapter one, verse two, it says this, the earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep water. Then it says, and who? The spirit of God. The spirit of God was hovering over the surfaces of the water. So we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That was not something new in the New Testament. It was something that was revealed in the New Testament that always was. But we see this pattern of God speaking things into existence. God spoke, God commanded, and then order came. And now we have Adam and God later on created Eve from the rib of Adam. And with this, he speaks. Spoke and he, well, even before he created Eve, he gave Adam a command. He spoke an order to Adam. Chapter 2, verse 8 says this Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Pay very close attention to those two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15, skipping down a little bit. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat his fruit, you will surely die. God said you can eat from anything. That included the tree of life. He gave him anything that he wanted. And he only reserved one thing for him not to do. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Ironically enough, I was telling my wife this just yesterday, not even thinking about this message. I said, our dog only wants what he can't have. <laughs> and I know some of y'all are dog lovers, so I don't mean to offend you. But my dog is dumb. <laughs> and if I'm standing, if he sees me even motioning like I'm walking towards the door, he beelines it for the door and he just sits there with his little tail, tail wagon. And I'm always like, dude, get out of the way. But if you open up the door and you let him out, he just sits by the door and can't wait to get back inside. I'm like, what do you want? 
If he's inside, he wants to be outside. If he's outside, he wants to be inside. Isn't that just like our human nature though? We always want that one thing that we cannot have. God has given us so much, blessed us so much, yet we fail to see that in favor of what the other thing that we don't have. I've heard it put like this, the grass is always greener on the other side because it's full of crap. It's full of fertilizer. We always want what we don't have. And part of the reason we always want what we don't have, and this is a side note, a quick detour, is because of the lack of gratitude we have for what we do have. Let me say, I've heard it put like this. The shortest lived emotion that we have is gratitude. Because the moment we send a text message that says, hey, by the way, thank you for what you did for me, we've put it aside, forgot about it, and moved on. As soon as we say, hey, thanks, we've moved on, instead of recognizing, we've got it pretty good. God, you've been faithful to me. You've been good to me. That kid that I want to kill, I prayed for. I covered in prayer. That husband that you want to tell off, remember how much you prayed for him when you were by yourself. Sometimes we miss out on the beauty of the things God's given us because of our inability to be grateful for what he's given us. Grass is always green on the other side. Now again, God gives Adam this command and he gives him this command before Eve is even in existence. He hasn't created Eve yet, but he's given Adam this command and that's important for you to understand because the command was given to who? Say it with me, to who? Adam. Adam. Let's dive into chapter three. Genesis chapter three, verse one. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now let's pause there. Because now this new character is introduced into the narrative. This, This new figure is introduced into this story that was not there before. Up until this moment, we hear God said, God spoke, but now there's another voice entering the scene. Now, you may be wondering, who is the snake? Who's the serpent? It's kind of like movies. When you're watching a movie and you, you how many of you have ever seen that actor and you're like, I, I know that guy. Who is that guy? Man, I, I can't remember him. Now, this is, listen to me, teenagers and young people. This is before Google. We used to have these kind of questions. Now we just pull out our phone. Oh, yeah, that's, that's Jack, blah, blah, blah. He was born in 1959 and he didn't. But back in the day, we had to miss out on half the movie trying to figure out who that person was. Until we got to the end of the movie and they told us who that person really was. Well, in the Bible, at the end of the book, it tells us who the serpent really is. In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 7, it says this, Then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his archangels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, listen to this, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. The one deceiving the whole world was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Now that name Satan is a term that actually means adversary adversary to the kingdom, the adversary to God, the adversary to God's people. So we see at the end of the book who the character was in the beginning of the book. This was not just a serpent, not just a snake. This was the the embodiment of the devil. And that's who showed up. And I want to give you a couple of scriptures. You can, I don't have time to read them all to you because I got to dive into this. But if you're interested in who is that, where did he come from? Look at Ezekiel chapter 28. Read Ezekiel chapter 28. That there's a prophecy that begins talking about the king of uh, Tyre and takes a quick turn all of a sudden into speaking about something far deeper than that, talking about the enemy. 
Another scripture is Isaiah chapter 14 that starts off talking about the king of Babylon, but who exalted himself in pride. And all of a sudden the Bible is lumping him and the devil in the same terminologies and describing things about him. Jesus talks about him as well. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, this is what it says. And when is this, when, excuse me, Jesus said, yes, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now he said this to his disciples who had just had been given the authority to go out and cast out devils. And they were going out and they were casting out devils and they were realizing that the devil, the demonic presences were actually subject, subjugated to them and they had authority over them. So they come back, Jesus, all of this stuff is great. And Jesus said, yep, I saw him fall like lightning from heaven. But then he warns them, don't rejoice over that. Just rejoice that you're saved. Just rejoice God's been merciful to to you. And I believe that was a warning to not only them, but to all of us about pride. Because we can get prideful about our accomplishments. We can even get prideful about our spirituality. Jesus was saying, don't lose sight of the gratitude of the fact that you're even here because of my mercy. God's mercy, God's grace towards you. So I'm building, I'm, I'm building this case. I want you to see something. So this is the character. This is the figure that is now being introduced to us in Genesis chapter 3. Go on, let's go back there. Genesis 3 verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from all of the trees in the garden? The ESV translation says it this way. He said... To the woman, did God actually say? This is the introduction of this new voice. Because up until this point, it's been God said, God said, God said. Now comes this new voice that says, He said, did God actually say? Are y'all with me? That statement alone is wicked and evil and twisted. God said, but then he comes as if to somehow contradict and fight against what God said. He said, did God really say that? And he's having the the serpent, the snake, is having a conversation with Eve. And I know many of you grew up knowing the Bible and knowing the story, but I want you to see some things very clearly in this message today. He targets the woman Which begs the question, where was Adam? Where was Adam? The scripture isn't explicitly clear. We don't know exactly, but we know he was there when she took the bite of the apple because all she had to do was hand it to him. So either he was there watching the serpent have this conversation with Eve Or he was not where he was supposed to be standing guard over her while the serpent was having this conversation with Eve. Either way, it was still his responsibility. Men, I've said this to you many times before. The definition of masculinity, the right, the proper definition of masculinity is not how big you are. It's not about how many girlfriends you had. It's not about how much money you have. I love the way the New Testament says it. May your money perish with you if that's what you're putting your trust in. But the true definition of masculinity is this, the glad acceptance of sacrificial responsibility. It's when you take responsibility. The command, the charge was given to Adam. And though Eve was the one having the conversation with the serpent, that does not let Adam off the hook. As a matter of fact, Adam was the one who was held accountable and responsible for this. Because he was the one God put in charge. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let me keep going. The devil questions what God says. What did God actually say? His goal was to undermine and to twist what God said. And I want you to know something. The attack of the devil has not changed much, even to this day. He does the exact same thing that he did in the garden. He twists what God said. Because God's word brought order. 
God's word brought harmony and peace and things were working the way that they were supposed to work. But this separate voice, the voice of the enemy, came to bring chaos, disarray, disorder, and anarchy. That's his plan. Listen to what these voices produce. God's word brings order. But the enemy came and he says, did God really say this? Is that really what God said? And he's baiting her because, listen, the first step in challenging a biblical worldview is to twist that worldview. It's to twist what God actually says. That's the first attack, the first challenge against it. His game was not God isn't real because clearly God's real. His game was God's holding out on you. His game was an accusation even against the character and the nature of God. Don't miss this. Please don't miss this. This is so important. And he still does this today by asking questions like, did God say you can't have sex? No, he didn't say that. What he said is how to do it in the right context. What he said was the right way to do it in the context between, in a relationship between one man and one woman under the covering of a lifelong committed relationship to one another. He never said sex was bad. Sex is great if you're married. If it's not, get in a small group, get accountable to some people, and then maybe it'll get great again. I know we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. But God didn't say, no, that's bad. He said, it's right in the right context. We still wrestle. These are still the battles that we have today. Does God really say that this is wrong? And it's an accusation against God. Does God hate gay people? Does God hate transgenders? Does God hate people of different religions? Let me answer the question for you. If that's the question that you've had, the answer is no. He does not. He loves them. He died for them. If they were the only people on the planet, different religions, transgender, gay people, people have done horrible things in their lifetime. God does not hate them. God loves them. If they were the only ones, he would have died on the cross for them. He would have died for them by name. But he loves them enough to tell them the truth about their life. He loves them enough to challenge the way that they're living. When I got saved, I was an absolute wreck. And I did not come to God and say, God, I'm going to keep smoking weed. I'm going to keep breaking the law. I'm going to keep sleeping around. I I didn't have the ability and the right to do that. When he saved me, I came underneath his lordship and I decided his word is right even when I'm wrong. So I'm going to submit to that. Listen to me, here's what the enemy does. He accuses God's people and he makes them, he makes all of us look like Christians with picket signs saying God hates these people, God hates those people. That's not Christianity. God loves those people, he died for those people, but he refuses at the same time to call sin right. He won't. And he loves them enough to change them and to change us. That's the enemy's tactic. God is holy. He does not change his word for us, but he changes us to fit his word. That's the beauty of who God is. Here's the core issue that the enemy attacks in our worldview. Can God really be trusted? Can God's word really be true? That's the attack of the enemy. That's the accusation. Because whatever you trust, that's what you build your worldview on. You put your trust in something, and that's the lens, again, in which you see the world. And if you trust God and you trust his word, that's how you'll view the world. Verse 2, Eve's response, of course we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden. The woman replied, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. She wasn't even there when God gave that command initially to Adam, but Adam must have passed it on or she'd received it from God herself. 
So the first maid, they're having the conversation and she's entertaining him. That's part of our danger right now. We entertain snakes. We entertain things that we should step over and keep going. But we entertain the thoughts, we entertain the conversations, we entertain the pictures online, we entertain the stuff, we entertain the billboards, we entertain what they, he said, she said, we entertain those things when we should move on. It's the first bait. And he's got her and they're engaging and they're in this conversation. Verse four, listen to his response. You won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now he's going in for the kill. He tells her what God said is not true. Now, what he's saying has just enough truth in it to manipulate her. Just enough truth in it. You won't surely die. Here's the big lie. Not only is God not telling you the truth, but he's holding out on you. If we're being honest, how many of us have ever asked ourselves that question or had that feeling? I feel like God's holding out on me. I feel like I'm not, he's not showing me everything or I'm not, if I, he, he doesn't want me to have this fun. He doesn't want me to have this experience. He doesn't want me to be able to have what makes me happy. In that moment, she wanted to be happy and her happiness brought about the greatest consequence known to man. The very thing he was protecting her from, her quote unquote happiness. He was telling her, if you eat this fruit, you'll be like him. You'll have more, you'll get more, you'll understand more. Life will be better for you if you can just have it. And we buy into those same lies. Life will be better for me if I can just have that or have her or be in that group or believe this. And it's all the trap. It's the same trap of the devil to get you to want something you're not supposed to have. And this classic, this is classic temptation. Now, here's the thing. We fear, sometimes we don't do certain things because of the fear of the Lord, right? There's certain things that we fear the consequence of doing this. God told them, if you do this, you will die. And we fear doing those things until we are tempted and we do them. And all of a sudden, we don't get that consequence initially that we thought we were going to get. Now we start being more and more emboldened to do that thing that we once feared. Because now we somehow believe we won't have the consequence that we thought we were going to have. Are y'all with me this morning? We start believing, yeah, I'm not going to die if I do this. It's not the end of the world. Come on, it's just one, one click won't hurt. I only slept with them one time. I only used that drug once. I only told one lie. And the consequence may not immediately come, but church, listen to me, listen to your pastor. The consequence may not come immediately, but I promise you the consequence is coming. It is coming. It is a lie to believe that it will not come. And that is the enemy's trick. That is his deception. The lie says you will not die, but the truth is you will die. Death was not even in the earth until They did that. And did they die immediately? Nope. But they surely died. And all of us die because of their sin. Let's keep going. Verse 6. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. See, the serpent twisted her worldview by twisting her view of God's word. He twisted the way that she saw the world by simply twisting what God said. That is what he still does today. Beware of those voices who try to get you to not believe God. 
Beware of those voices who say, God, if you believe that, you're being a bigot. If you believe that, you must be like this, or you're in this camp if you believe that. Listen, I don't care what anybody says. God's word is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. My job, man, I'm just getting off on this tangent, but you hear my heart. My goal is not to be accepted by the Republicans. That is not my goal. My goal is not to be accepted by the Democrats. That is not my goal. My goal is to be accepted by him. That's my goal. I hope if you're a Democrat that at times I offend you. I hope I do because you need it. I hope at times if you're a Republican that I offend you because you need it. Because before we are any of those things, we are Christians. We belong to Jesus. That is who we are. Our identity has to first be found in that. And guess what? All of the systems and the political parties and the politicking of the world and the kingdoms of this world will never get it right. We have to build our worldview off of his worldview so that we can see clearly. Y'all with me? If I offended you, praise God. I'm grateful for that. Stage, there were four stages in which Eve, this temptation happened. First, she saw the fruit and it looked delicious. She saw it. She thought for a moment, I can be good without God. That was it. You will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. You will, she saw a moment to be good without God. She wanted what she felt like God could not give her or did not want her to have. So she saw it. It looked delicious. Then she took it. That's the second stage. Then she ate it. And then, what's worse, she gave it to her husband. Now, those were her her four stages. Adam had one stage, disobedience. I believe this, that if she would have offered it to Adam and he would have turned it down, sin would not have entered the world. But because he disobeyed God, sin entered the world. He ate it. The command was given to Adam. Yes, it was for them, but it was given to Adam. Eve was deceived by the serpent. Not excusable. It's no excuse. God still held her accountable. But ultimately, Adam is the one who disobeyed God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22 says this. Just as everyone died because we all belong to Adam. Then say Adam and Eve. Adam. Verse 7. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. They've been walking around naked this whole time. And they get this fruit and now they know the difference between good and evil. Now all of a sudden there's a shame and they come and they cover themselves and they cover themselves with fig leaves. Now, I don't know if any of y'all have ever seen a fig leaf. It's like sandpaper. It's not comfortable. They didn't have a very good fashion sense. But they're covering themselves. They have this newfound wisdom. For all of their newfound wisdom, they couldn't even cover themselves well. They still needed God. For as smart as you are and all the wisdom you are and you have, you still need God. I don't care how intelligent you are. I don't care how how brilliant, how successful. None of that matters unless you're dependent on him. And my question to you would be, what fig leaves do you cover yourself with? When you've done something wrong and you sin against God or you recognize your own sin nature, what do you cover yourselves with? And I can tell you, for most of us, this is what we cover ourselves with. Self-righteousness. I'm going to be better than that person. Therefore, I'm not as bad. Have you ever noticed when you, you witness to people, you try to tell people about Jesus, what do they say? It's almost the same thing all the time. I'm not that bad. Well, how do you know? Well, I've never, 
killed anybody. Like that is the one line between, in the sand between good people and bad people. Bad people kill people, good people don't. Right, we have this self-righteous mindset. Or even, look up here, don't miss this, religiosity. It's a fig leaf that we cover ourselves with. We try to be uber religious and we try to gain God's favor and we try to get everybody to think that we're awesome and we're special and look at me. We cover ourselves with that. Deceiving ourselves, self-deceiving ourselves and deceiving other people into, this is our goal, make them think I'm better than I am. Those are all fig leaves. We tell ourselves I'm a good person, but at our core, we're not. And here's the truth about this worldview that I'm talking about today. And this is important for us to know. We're not good people. There is a thing called original sin that we are learning about and hearing about right now. We were born into this world with sin. When we say things like, I'm a good person at heart, we're lying. When we say, I know that ultimately in their heart of hearts they're a good person, that is not true. Because in our core of course, we have a sin nature that we're born into the world with. You don't have to teach children how to sin. They're born knowing how to be good at it. You don't have to teach a child to lie, they just do. You don't have to teach them how to be selfish. They just are. Why? Because it's in our very nature. We are not good people in need of being better. That's what people think the church is. I'm going to go to the church so I can become a better person. You have it wrong. You're not a good person in need of being better. You are a dead, sinful person in need of new life. That is who we are. And Jesus provides that for us. We're born into this world with sin. Verse eight, when the cool evening breeze was blowing, the man and his wife heard the good, excuse me, heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. God's coming. And some scholars believe that this was a recurring thing, that God would come and walk with them in the cool of the day. How amazing would that be? Have a daily stroll with God in the cool of the day, walking intimately with the creator of the universe. But this time when he came, they hid. They covered themselves. Why? Because they knew they had sinned against him. And not only did they knew they had sinned against him, I believe at this moment, don't miss this, at this moment they remembered the consequence of their sin. When they were taking the bite of the fruit, they weren't thinking about the consequence. But now that God showed up, they remembered. He said, if I eat this fruit, I will surely die. Here he comes, he may kill me. Isn't it ironic? Again, when we're doing it, we don't think about the consequence. We don't think about the far-reaching impacts of the thing that we're falling prey to. But the moment accountability comes, first thing comes to mind. I did this. I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I did that. The enemy will tell you, just do it, but he won't tell you, here's the consequence. But this is what the Bible tells us. The wages of our sin is death. The payment of our sin is death. Verse nine, then the Lord God called to the man. Notice who we called to first. And he says, where are you? Adam replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Verse 11, who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me. Again, counseling appointments are set up Monday through Thursday. It's the woman who you gave me, who gave me the fruit and I ate it. I want you to see this. This is so subtle. Not only is he shifting the blame to his wife, he's shifting the blame to God. God, the reason I did this is because of that woman who you gave me. So God, ultimately, this is really kind of your fault 
You and her did this to me. That's what he's saying. And this is one of the greatest flaws of our sinful nature is our inability to take responsibility and accountability for the things that we've done. Like I said before, genuine masculinity is sacrificially accepting responsibility. And we don't, we, we don't take responsibility for our families, we don't take responsibilities for our communities, we don't take responsibility for our nation because we have a hard enough time taking responsibility for our own actions. I counsel and walk with men all the time. And I wish this was not a common thread, but it very much is. And it's something even in my own life that I have to kill. It's the inability to say the reason why this is what it is is because of what I did. I'm taking responsibility for this. Now, I got angry because she, she made me do this. No, she didn't. You are held accountable for what you did, irregardless of what she did. I fell into temptation because she. The reason this is happening is because they. Listen to me, man. I've said this before. It may not be your fault, but it is your responsibility. You can't stop shifting the blame and be a man and take responsibility. Own it. Thank you. You may have reasons, but those reasons are not excuses. There are no excuses. And what happens? We hide. When we do something wrong, we hide and we blame. And that's the beautiful thing about Jesus. That's what makes Jesus the ultimate man. He came and took responsibility for our sin, even when he didn't sin. He took responsibility for his bride. He took responsibility for his kids. They did it, but he took the responsibility. Modeling for us what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to live. Verse 13, the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? She wasn't off the hook. The serpent deceived me, blame shifting all over the place. The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. God held them all accountable for what they did. And he begins with the serpent. And I want you to see something amazing. Verse 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, the serpent's over there like, who am I going to blame? It was the elephant. (laughs) Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, grovel in the dust as long as you live, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Don't miss this, because what I'm getting ready to share is so profound. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. I believe that right here at the very first sin is the first prophecy about Jesus. Because it talks about her offspring and it doesn't say your offspring as if maybe a a son or a daughter, he goes right to a singular he. The seed that came from Adam will strike the head, will crush the head of the serpent and the head of the serpent will bruise the heel of him. That was a prophecy about the coming Messiah. That was a prophecy about the redemption that would come thousands of years later from the very beginning. God had a plan to fix what they made wrong from the very beginning. And I believe it's in that moment that the enemy waged war against the seed of Adam. Because it's in that moment that all of a sudden, think about throughout history, the enemy's plan has been, let me kill the children. Pharaoh killed the children in in hopes of stopping God's people. Herod killed the children in hopes of stopping the Messiah, even in our day and our time. Same thing. It's been the attack of the enemy against us, against the seed of Adam, because he fears the coming of the Messiah, not only once, but his second coming. 
Nonetheless, he gives judgment to the serpent. Then he goes to the man and the woman, and I'm almost done. Verse 16. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Verse 17. And to the woman he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the curse, excuse me, the ground is cursed because of you. All of your life, you will struggle to catch a living from this. Scratch, excuse me, a living from this. It will grow thorns and thistles for you. Though you will eat of his grains by the sweat of your brow, will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust and to dust you will return. God brings his judgment upon man. He brings his judgment upon woman. And ironically enough, that's still the sin nature inside of us that we battle. Hear me as your pastor, and I say this lovingly. A lot of times for women, it's the battle to trust and to submit to the leadership that God has placed in your life. For men, it's the inability for them to actually take responsibility for what they've done and lead well. God created us to be a team. Created us to be a team. And in our sin nature, we rage against this. Ladies, that's why you want to be in control when you're not supposed to be. Men, that's why you sit passively back and just ignore. Well, my wife will tell them. She'll discipline the kids. Oh, the finances will be okay, I guess. It's part of our sinful nature. Verse 20. Then the man Adam named his wife Eve because he would be the mother of all who live. She would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothes from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Now listen to this. I'm almost done. I promise. God killed an animal and shed that animal's blood to cover them even though they sinned. Now he probably killed two animals, and more than likely, just from what we know about the Bible, that animal was probably a lamb. So he killed two lambs, a lamb for each individual. Later on in the history, we would see a lamb put over the door, the blood of a lamb put over the doorpost to represent a family. And later on, we would see a lamb that represented the sins of a nation until one day we would see a single lamb whose blood was shed for all of mankind, the lamb of God. Even in their sin, Jesus covered them. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the garden of Eden. And he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim or angels to the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now the serpent twisted their worldview, excuse me, by twisting the word of God. He twisted God's word and he twisted the world. We have a sin nature. We've had one, excuse me, ever since then. Now see this. The downfall of mankind, the downfall of humanity began with one question. Did God really say that? Did God actually say, is the Bible something that we can trust? Is God's word really said that? Because maybe a different version of it says this, and maybe a different interpretation of it says this. No, no, no. It says what it says, and it means what it says. And if the enemy can twist our translation of God's word, if he can twist what God said, he can twist the way we see the world. Are y'all with me? But there's good news. And we're going to dive into that good news in the next couple weeks. But what's interesting to me is that this chapter ends by talking about this tree of life. The tree is still there. It's not gone. What did Jesus die on? A tree. 
and it's his tree that now brings us life. This is the tree of life. They chose the wrong tree. They chose to be righteous in their own eyes. They chose to have something good apart from God. They chose it. But Jesus would come later and reintroduce the tree of life to us so that we could simply choose to follow him and let the lamb of God's blood that was shed wash us clean and we choose to follow him. There's still two trees today. Choose which one you're going to eat from. Close your eyes. Let me pray for you. This morning, if you're hearing, maybe this is eye-opening to you because for so long you thought your ability to be righteous, to be a good person came from your ability to do what was right all the time. Your efforts are following perfectly. Maybe you've been trying to be perfect because you're trying to be exactly what your mom told you you needed to be or exactly with the pressure your dad put on you that you have to be or exactly what society wants you to be. I want you to hear the truth today. Stop eating from that tree. Eat from the tree of life that simply says, follow me, follow me. That is what God is offering you today. That's what Jesus offered us. Follow me, eat from the tree of life. I'm talking about being born again. If you're here today and you're far away from God and you want to be made right with him, not by anything you've done, and there's nothing that you've done that he cannot forgive in this moment. If you're here and you say, Pastor, I want that. I want to be made right in God's eyes. But first, I'm willing to say, I'm going to follow him. So with no one looking around, every eye closed, every head bowed, I want to give you that opportunity in a moment today to be born again. And it's a very simple process, as simple as ABC. I want you to admit that you're a sinner, that you're far away from God. I want you to believe, be believed that God sent Jesus to die on that tree to give you new life. And see to confess that he is now the Lord of your life, that you're going to bow your knee and follow him. If that's you, you say, Pastor, I want to be born again. With nobody looking around, I want to pray for you. If that's you, and the come through, I just want you to lift up your hand, and I'm going to lead you in that prayer. One, two, three. If that's you, lift it up. If you say, that's me, Pastor, I want to be born again. Thank you. Thank you. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. See your hand back there. Thank you. Praise God. You can put him down. Thank you. See your hand back there. Church, let's pray this prayer out loud together. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe on the cross you died for my sin, for my guilt, and for my shame. I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to go. And you rose again from the dead to give me a place in heaven a purpose on earth and a relationship with the Father. I turn away from my sin. I repent of my sin and I choose to follow you. And from this moment on, God, you're my Father. Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior. Holy Spirit, you're my helper. And heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Come on, church. Let's celebrate with everybody that prayed that prayer.